scripture study from Matthew 22 and 1 John. First from Matthew 22, this is, this is Jesus giving us the greatest commandment. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And other, uh, in, in Mark, it'll say all your strength as well, with all we are. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it or linked to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then from 1 John, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so may God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. You may be seated. We are now in the midst of the longest shutdown of the federal government in history. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus when he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. While the U.S. is no longer divided by slavery, Americans have moved so far to the left and right that over half of Republicans and Democrats have a very unfavorable view of the other party, some even viewing the other party as a threat to our safety. Is there anything you and I can do to bring together the United States of America? The fundamental commitment is to the dignity of ordinary people. For his role in those felonies, that lawyer himself, Michael Cohen. What was one of the most single, most inspiring challenges to the country. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. <laughs> well, bye-bye, peace. It feels like that, doesn't it? Just constant conflict, bye-bye peace. And so today we're talking about how to live with wisdom and joy instead of the fear and the fatigue that we're experiencing so much in our culture. And first of all, because this is our first Sunday, I want to acknowledge something and, and thank our team who's done an amazing job here. If you have a strange hankering for maybe a rectangular piece of pizza like you used to get in school, or a grilled cheese sandwich perhaps, or a little fruit cocktail, there's a reason for that. We're at an elementary school cafeteria right now, and our team, there could be dry stuff under your chair, don't reach under there, I don't recommend it. Our team comes in this space and blows through here and transforms this into a worship space. Are you thankful for their work here this morning? They showed up at 8 o'clock, did an amazing job. So many people behind the scenes as well, our road crew and sound and kids and video and hospitality. We're so thankful to them. Somebody asked me, why aren't you using the stage? Because there's a stage over there. Well, if you look over there, isn't that like a perfect picture of Dante's Inferno above the stage? If we were a hellfire and brimstone church, that would be uh, beautiful every single week as a visual to literally scare the hell out of people if we wanted to do that. But uh, for now, you know, it would, be, it would take a lot to cover that. So for, for now, we're, we're here on the floor. 
And I'm so proud of our team, and I'm thankful for their work. Um, We're starting with this particular series, United States of America, about the situation that we find ourselves in, because we understand that a lot of people have given up on church. And in 2019, I think there's a question we have to answer up front. Why would people go to church? Why church? Because not everybody is. And there's actually been a decline in church attendance, especially over the past 10 years. Uh, And a lot of it, when we ask people why they're not as interested in church, a lot of what they have to say has to do with the relationship between religion and politics. That their sense has been that too many Christians have gotten wrapped up in partisan politics and and it's become too worldly, it's become too divided, and just like our whole culture has, and that's crept into church as well. And they just get fatigued and they don't want to be a part of that. And there are so many people who feel like they look at some of the most vocal Christians in the media, some of the loudest voices, and they think, I'm not sure that really represents Jesus. I'm not sure what I hear out of some of the most vocal Christians that really represents what I understand about Jesus. You may feel differently than them, but that's how a lot of people feel right now. And so we just want to acknowledge that, but we wanted to start with this series to give uh, folks a different idea of what church can be. We're talking about super tense subjects over the next three weeks. Our political situation, the division in our culture, the widening gap as we saw in the video between conservatives and liberals and the distrust and, and, the, and uh, just the fighting and, and it just seems like, you know, where's all this headed? And we wanted to, to make the point, if people who want to follow Jesus and love God, people who claim to love their neighbors or themselves, if they can't talk about these things civilly, and with decency and with respect, who can? If we can't talk about it here, where are we going to talk about it? Does that make sense? What do you think? If we can't talk about tough subjects here, then wow, maybe we're in trouble as a culture. And so we wanted to start right out of the gate and model what it could look like. Not to tell people how to vote. We have no interest in doing that. You're going to vote the way that you're going to. Probably wouldn't change your mind anyway if I tried. The same is true for me. Uh, but we can, we can model what it looks like to be perhaps the United States of America. How does that sound? Does that sound like a good approach? And so that's the approach that we want to take in this series. And let's also acknowledge right now that, that in that tension of this subject, you probably feel some emotions that are pretty powerful. As, as you look at our situation in our country, we have people who voted for the current president here. We have people who didn't vote for the current president here. And both of those folks are welcome today and throughout this series. And we have people who uh, look at our situation now and they're fairly happy with how things are going. There are people who look at our situation now and they're they're alarmed by how things are going. There's just a lot of emotion. Um, How many have experienced awkward family dinners? Have you you felt that at all? I didn't even ask for hands. You're like, I hear you, brother. I hear you, brother. And, And so we just live in a time where you can't escape that. Everybody's feeling that right now. And so what would it look like to have conversations that are constructive and that might help us to move forward and and acknowledge the difficulty, acknowledge the differences of opinion. They're there. We're not going to sweep that under the rug. But at least ask the question, what does it look like to love your neighbor? You love your brother and sister in a time like this. So let's uh, jump in. A friend of mine, Justin Lee, is an author and speaker, and he posted something on his Facebook page a couple months ago that I think sums up our time as well as anything I've read. 
And uh, I have that uh, quote here. It's kind of lengthy, but it'll be on the screen for you. He said, this morning I read an interesting news article about how politicians from both sides of the aisle agree that the state of U.S. politics is broken due to polarization and tribalism. I started to post the article here. It's relevant to my latest book, after all, and it's a topic I'm very interested in. But just as I'd finished crafting some thoughtful words to accompany the post, I started thinking about what would happen when I posted it. Facebook's just a minefield, isn't it? Like, it's good that he's thinking about this. He says, someone, I'm sure, would respond by pointing a finger. It's really the fault of politician, party, social group, etc. Someone would agree. Someone else would disagree and point a finger in a different direction. Someone would suggest that the fault lies on all sides, prompting someone else to rail against false equivalents. Someone would think that by posting about polarization without pointing, out a spe- uh, pointing a specific finger, I was letting certain people off the hook. And as I thought about all that, I decided not to post it. Probably, isn't that like a mantra for 2019? I decided not to post it. That's pretty good. But it stuck with me, so I decided to write this about why I didn't write that. This is why nuance matters. If we can't even talk about why we're not talking because of how we anticipate others might respond, how will we work towards solutions? Isn't that great? Reminds me of a married couple who's so on the rocks that they show up to a counselor and the counselor has a hard time even helping them begin the conversation, to even agree on terms. Here's how we start talking about this. It's tough for a counselor in that situation. It's tough for the couple. When when it's that far gone that you can't even agree on how to start, but it feels like that's kind of where we are right now as a culture. I think that for me, the key word I heard there is the word tribalism. Did you pick up on that word? That we're stuck in tribalism. Human beings are tribal creatures. Sometime in our past, we learned that that protects us from threats, and, and if we huddle together, there's strength in numbers, and, and you can take down the wildebeest or whatever it is that we faced at that time, and we just learned to be tribal people. Now, one of the downsides of being tribal is that if you can't find common ground, and if you can't find a way to negotiate and come to some kind of a win-win, then you view each other as a threat. And then what happens when you view each other as a threat? What's happened throughout human history? You go to war. That's the downside of tribalism. Now, if tribes can find common interests and negotiate and work for the common good and agree on some things, then we can live at peace. That's our task. That's the question. And we're standing at a crossroads and facing that decision right now. It's hard to even talk about how we might be able to move forward, but if we don't even try, there's no chance. And so... Uh, Like the video said, we live in a time of increasing division and conservatives and progressives are moving farther apart. Now, what causes that division to widen? When when we're tribal creatures and that's just who we are and we acknowledge that, what causes the division to widen even more? Well, as I've been researching this series, um, I've been reflecting on the anxiety that so many of us feel right now. And the, the, I would say fear that we feel right now. And would you agree with me that if you could sum up our time in a single word, maybe you wouldn't, but this is how I'm viewing it, I think. If you could view up our time in a single word or sum up our time in a single word, it might be the word fear. There seems to be so much fear between us, between people who disagree, between us and people we perceive as different than us, fear of even talking about it, fear of the future, fear of where all this is going, 
we fear for our children. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you, you maybe, or just if you aunt and uncle, you love kids, you, feel, you, you fear for what the future is going to be like for them. And so it seems like our time is summed up by the word fear. And it's not just fear over politics, of course. We all have our own fear and anxiety that we brought into this space this morning. What are your fears? Let me ask you. What makes you anxious? What's causing anxiety right now? What, what's caused anxiety this week for you? What do you fear? Of course, we don't just fear political things. And, and uh, I struggle with fear and worry and anxiety probably as much as the next person, if not more sometimes. I know how to be anxious. I've got that down. I've, I've, I've practiced. I know how to be anxious. And so I have no problem finding things to worry about and be fearful about my, with my kids. And I fear for their safety. And, and so I know what uh, anxiety and fear is like. About a year ago. I was at my day job and uh, sitting at my desk and um, I experienced something new. S- started feeling shortness of breath. And uh, I said, oh, that's odd. I haven't felt that before. And I don't have asthma. I have allergies, but not asthma. And I, had, I hadn't quite experienced that before over here on the left side of my chest. And then I, a few minutes went by and I started feeling this numbness go down my left arm. I, well, okay, never experienced that before. And um, so I'm feeling shortness of breath and numbness. And then I made the mistake of pulling out my phone and Googling shortness of breath and numbness. You know, when you look at the internet for a a health ailment, like it could be absolutely nothing or you could die in the next five minutes. It could be either one of those things. And uh, I was starting to get afraid. And um, shortness of breath, my my arm went numb, started feeling some pain, and then I broke out into a cold sweat. And this is over the period of about a half an hour. And I was trying to calm myself down and, and reading on the internet at the same time, which is a bad idea, and it didn't work. And I got to the place where I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And um, I told my, my manager there at the time, I said, I, I got to go. Um, and um, I'm, I'm not sure what's happening, but I, I got to go. I've never felt this before in my life. I'm 41, but I, I you know, I don't know. And as I was on my way to the car, I wasn't even thinking what happens if I have a heart attack in the car. You know, I just, I just thought I had to get to a hospital. And on my phone, my, uh, my lock screen photo is a picture of my wife and my two boys. And I actually, on, on the way out to the car, I, I looked at that picture and I said, I love you. I thought I may never see him again. I was, I was that scared. I drove to the hospital, checked in the ER, got an EKG and, and CAT scan and blood work and an IV and... Um, went through all these tests, and about an hour later, I felt absolutely fine. No heart attack, no, no, no uh, respiratory trouble. I was fine. I was able to get up and, and walk out of the room. No heart attack until I saw the bill, and then I almost... And what do you think happened to me? I probably had a panic attack, didn't I? Yeah, first time in my life. Um... I, I'm the kind of person where I'm go, 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 go all the time. I believe in, in the American ideal of just work, 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 and, 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 and just go, 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 go. And, and well, I'm, I'm starting to question that ideal a little bit. Maybe there's some downsides to that. Working two jobs or sometimes three and having so many irons in the fire. And that led to my own anxiety attack. And, and what about you? I've, I've had a conversation with two dudes in the past month that told me that they've had panic attacks. Because I kind of thought, well, you know, guys aren't supposed to believe those dumb messages. And it's just a common thing. 
because of this treadmill that we'll, we're all on, this rat race, and so many, you know, plates we try to keep spinning in the air, believing that's what it means to be a successful American and, att- and attain the American dreams, working ourselves to the bone all the time, not realizing that it's giving us all kinds of anxiety and fear. So quickly, before we talk about politics, I want to I share three things with you that I've been telling myself since I had that experience about a year ago. Three things that, for me, have helped me to reduce anxiety a little bit, and uh, they'll be up here uh, shortly. Here are three things I've been telling myself. Ryan, you're not in Afghanistan. What I mean by that is we have troops there. It's the longest war in U.S. history, going house to house hunting for terrorists, or we're civilians, you know, and seeing bombs dropped, and and you know what I mean by that. It's about perspective, isn't it? Ryan, I'm, I'm just, I'm not diminishing what we're all going through. And some people are going through things worse than I, Afghanistan. I have a friend who lost a child, okay? So I'm not talking about things like that. But I'm talking about this, the, the frustrations of life, the anxiety of life, finance and work and working long hours and feeling like you have to do that to make your boss happy or somebody happy. Ryan, you're not in Afghanistan. I, I want to see my own stress and my own demands in perspective. And then telling myself, Ryan, you've already seen a lot. Think about all the things God's brought you through. Think about how far you've come. Think about the last time something like this happened. Think about people who love you and what they have to say about you. And, and yeah, this person thinks that, but what about the people who know you? And, and, and just this is self-talk, isn't it? And I wonder if this would be helpful to you if you feel fear and anxiety. So I've just been telling myself things like this and other things too. Another one, your body doesn't lie. You can hear the Shakira influence in there, can't you? That's a slow burner. You'll laugh later on the way home maybe. Hips don't lie, body don't I, in my head, I planned that. I'm like, they're going to laugh so hard when I drop that Shakira joke. That's not the way it worked out at all. Your body doesn't lie. If you feel tired, guess what? You need rest. This is, this is new for me. I promise it is. Ryan, if you're hungry, guess what, man? You need to eat. No, I, just, I can drink some coffee. I can just drink some coffee and keep, I can skip lunch. Coffee, by the way, isn't coffee kind of like duct tape? where you feel like you're doing something helpful, but you're really not. It's more sleep would be the good answer. Food would be the good answer. If you're, if you're feeling fatigued and tired and run down, which maybe some of us are in the political climate we live in, what do you need? You need to unplug, get some rest, get some space. We're so tied to this, aren't we? And what if we unplugged a little bit? What if we got more rest? What if we, what if we listened to what, our, to what our bodies are telling us. So just those things have been helpful to me. But then in the times we live in, it's a challenge as well. And so to the political stress and fear and anxiety that we feel. Let me test this out on you. I don't know if you would find this to be true or not or agree with me, but um, as I examine my own thinking my own thoughts in the time that we live in now. This is what I feel is true for me. Now, would, it, would you agree that the number one fear around our current cultural and political situation is the fear, the realization that, that so many of us have had over the past few years that there are so many people in this world who see things so differently than you do. Have you thought about that? For me, as I, as I feel anxiety and fear around our time, it's been the realization that there are so many people, some in my family, 
but so many people in general who just see the world so differently than I do. And when that happens, it's hard for us to understand why they see things so differently. And that creates even more fear and anxiety because now it's a mystery. I, I, I'm not sure, I, even if I, if I go to social media, which isn't going to be very helpful, but, and I read comments, well, that's, that's not helping it make sense. And, and so there's this idea that, that I'm, I'm not as, uh, I don't belong as much as I thought I did, perhaps. As I look at the opinions of other people, there are so many people who see things differently than me, and that creates some kind of fear and anxiety in me, maybe more than anything. Does that ring true for anybody? The, the realization that there are so many people who see things so differently. Now, when that happens, there's an automatic response that, that is common to all humans. I do this, you do this. And it's being uncovered more and more in scientific research. Science Daily reported a study from Boston College, this is in November 2014, on, get ready for this, motive attribution asymmetry. Motive attribution asymmetry. And here's, here's what they did. They studied Israelis and Palestinians and American Republicans and Democrats. Isn't that comforting? People in the Middle East who have been at war for, for centuries and then Republicans and Democrats. We studied those two groups of people and here's what we found. The evidence showed both sides can't see eye to eye on possible solutions or compromise because they often can't see eye to eye on how to perceive each other. They can't compromise, but they don't even know how to perceive each other. We don't understand each other. And here's how it works. When people disagree with us and they see the world differently from us, we tend to assume that our views are backed up by good morals. And their views are backed up by morals that aren't as good as ours. That's the asymmetry. We think that our motives are good, but, and theirs are the opposite. We have good intentions, good emotions, good morals. They have less than good morals, less than good intentions. There's something about them that is not as good as us. In other words, when people disagree with me, I have good reasons and they have bad reasons. Or even more than that, when people disagree with me, I'm good and they're bad. They're bad people. So when progressives believe all Trump voters are racists, or when conservatives believe all progressives are bleeding heart, naive liberals. It's this idea that I have my views, and if their views are different, then, then they have lesser morals, lesser motives for what they believe. Dr. Leanne Young, who's in the study, said this. What we also found was that these attributions tend to also track with other sorts of consequences. So if you think that the people on the other side are motivated by their hatred of your group, you're also unwilling to negotiate with that group. You tend to think they're more unreasonable, suggesting that people's mis misattributions of other groups may be the cause of intractable conflict. So when people disagree with us, we think they're less than us and that we, we can't negotiate with them because they're unreasonable. These are, you can't reason with unreasonable people. These people don't have, they're not, they don't have good reasons the way that you and I do. So we can't even talk with them. What would we say? We can't figure out a solution because look at them. And, he, and we are where we are. And then our guest speaker on May 19th, Jared Bias, shared an article recently. Uh, it was an op-ed in the New York Times by a man named Arthur Brooks. And um, 
he wrote uh, an article entitled, Our Culture of Contempt. He said that our culture is more divided than it has been since the Civil War and that one in six Americans no longer talks to a family member or a close friend because of the 2016 election. One in six no longer talk after that. And he suggests that disagreement is not a bad thing. It's not, it's not bad to have different ideas. That's a good thing, actually. That's democracy. That's what propels us forward. We share ideas. That's not bad at all. But that what is damaging to our country is contempt. We have a, de- a definition of contempt on the screen. It's defined by dictionary.com as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. And what we've seen over the past 20 years, and especially 10 years, is an increase in contempt between political parties, between liberals and conservatives, the feeling that that person or that, that other party, that, that other that person in my family who disagree, they are, they are not as worthy as me. They're just not as smart as me. And there's something about them. I just don't think they even have good intentions. And I don't know how to talk to them because I don't, where would we even start? Because I don't think they're even reasonable. Does that describe where we are right now? It's just where we are. Let's be honest. And we feel that every day. We feel the anxiety of that. Or when you go to that awkward dinner, you go to work and you can't really talk about these things. Or you kind of look around and you feel, man, what's going on in our country? What's the future hold? We feel that. So we need to be honest about it. And so contempt is what causes tribes to go to war with each other. Contempt is what ends marriages. Counselors will say when a couple comes in and there's contempt, now we have a problem. If there's not contempt yet, we can probably fix this. If there's contempt, it's going to be tough. And then here's what happens. They're not as good as me. Now I feel contempt for them. Now they're a threat to me. Now they're a threat to my family. When people see things so differently from us, we assume they're motivated by evil. Then we feel contempt for them because they're motivated by evil and they're less worthy than we are. And now we view them as a threat. And there's a certain percentage of Americans who are now coming to view the other party as a greater threat than some other country or than terrorists. Our country is being pulled apart. Can you see how people of different political persuasions are giving in to motive uh, attribution asymmetry? Can you see how that works? You see that in your own life? Do you see how we can feel contempt? And what that looks like when we just see somebody make a comment, oh, and we just, we just write them off as irredeemable. And then we view them as a threat. And then what happens? Violence or violent words or at least violent attitudes, and there's no way to move forward at that point. Saving a marriage is hard at that point. Saving a business relationship is hard at that point. Mending a relationship between a parent and a child is hard at that point. We're not just talking about politics, by the way. This can play out in all kinds of relationships in our lives. And so what do we do? Do we get stuck there? When we feel like everybody who disagrees is a threat and we feel you know, this fear and anxiety and, and, and the not understanding them creates more in fear and anxiety, which drives us farther apart and more into contempt and viewing them as a threat. Well, what do we do? One of the reasons that I think church still matters, one of the reasons that we're starting a community in Chandler is because when I look at the teaching of Jesus, I see the answer. And it doesn't make it easy. And I don't mean that as some, of course, a pastor is going to say that. Some platitude, some cliche, because it's not easy. Where, where we are right now in our culture is not easy. We're not in an easy place. But I see in the teaching of Jesus a way forward. And what it looks like is not agreeing, 
not pretending that we agree, not pretending that we're never going to have a discussion, not pretending that we're going to not fight about it. Of course, vote, march, protest, join a political party, do more than typing on Facebook, get involved. Get involved in the political structures in your area. Canvas, make phone calls. Do all the things that you feel are important to do to, to express your conscience and, and where you see the future of America needs to go. But as we do those things, Jesus says, what does it mean to follow me? What does it mean to be a Christian? Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment, singular? There's no S on the end of that in the, in the scripture we, wrote, we read. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus gives them two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it or linked to it. Love your neighbor. Who's, who's my neighbor? Oh, Jesus told all kinds of stories about who's your neighbor. And that's, that's when it gets super uncomfortable. That's when the crowd got really small for Jesus. Lots of people followed him until he started talking about who your neighbor is. Who's your neighbor? This is hard for me. I'm preaching to myself too, by the way. Who's your neighbor? The people... Uh, you can't stand the most. <laughs> the people who are the most vocal about views that are different than yours. The people that you're not even sure how to have a conversation with. And what good would it do? That's your neighbor. So the, the question for us as people who want to follow Jesus is what does it look like to have my views, vote, march, protest, speak out on all the issues that I believe are important. Silence only aids the oppressor. Silence is worth nothing. How do I speak and vote and do all those things but do it while loving my neighbor? That's hard, isn't it? And then John tells us even more, gets more specific. Perfect love casts out fear. When I choose to love, I, I don't have to be afraid of God. That's what that verse 18 is referring to. Because I can cast my cares on him, as First Peter says in the New Testament. Cast all your anxieties on him. I don't have to be afraid in life, but I also don't have to be afraid of other people. I don't have to feel contempt. I don't have to get in this downward spiral of viewing them as a threat and, and feeling fear and anxiety. Is it possible that a great amount of the fear and anxiety you and I feel right now is because of motive attribution asymmetry? We feel so much fear and anxiety because we've written people off. And now we see him as a threat and we're afraid when we wouldn't have to be afraid in the first place. If I can view people through the lens of, of God's redeeming love and view them the way that God does, maybe I wouldn't be so fearful. Maybe I wouldn't be so anxious. Maybe I wouldn't be so fatigued and just tired of it all. Verse 19, we love because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. His word's not mine. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. What does it look like to have strong political opinions? But as you do it, you love the person you disagree with. What does that look like? Right before we have communion, I want to show you a video in closing. It's about four minutes long. It's worth every second. Uh, this video is uh, from a show on the Vice channel called One Star Reviews. Anybody heard of One Star Reviews? You're in, for, you're in for a treat. Then this guy, uh, Taji Amin is his name. He uh, is the producer of these uh, shows, One Star Reviews. And what he does is he goes on to Yelp. And he finds the worst reviewed business on Yelp. And then he goes there. And, and we're not talking about, like, buying a pair of shoes. We're talking about tattoos. 
we're talking about haircuts, right? Like th- tattoos more than haircuts, but things that matter, right? I mean, so he, he's going on Yelp. He's finding these, these terrible comments, these horrible reviews. And then he decides to go to this place. And I want to show you a video of when Taji decided to get a tattoo. Let's check it out. Isn't that phenomenal? Five stars. They got five stars. One, one, one star to five. You can clap. There, I mean, he's not here to hear you, but you can clap. That's good. Isn't that a picture of loving your neighbor, of offering grace, right? I mean, tattoo's permanent, right? Without a painful removal process. He asked Nate some questions. He listened, um, gave him a little grace, and then had a good experience. Of course, that doesn't mean that every conversation we have about politics or every experience we have is going to go that, that well. It is an inspiration, though, about what is possible when we refuse contempt, when we refuse to see others as a threat, and we choose to love. Now, we're going to take communion in a moment. Before we end the service, communion is a reenactment of the death of Jesus. And we believe Jesus is raised, right? So we have an anticipation of the resurrection. Jesus chose to love. And what happened to him? He was crucified. When you choose to love your neighbor, it is not a guarantee that it's going to end as well as the tattoo. They may come right back at you. They, they might hurt you. They might, they might say hurtful things to you. I, I hope they don't do hurtful things to you. That does happen in our society, and we need to speak out when that happens. But it's not a guarantee. So we're not talking about naivety today. We're not talking about moral platitudes. We're, we're talking about love is hard. But this is the task that we have. As we take part in the, the juice and the bread, the body and the blood of Jesus, it represents. This reminds us of what love can look like. And so uh, as we prepare to take communion, um, next week we're talking about what happens when you have disagreements with your family members or friends or people you're close to, and, and they see things differently than, than you do. It's called United with Your Family next week. It can be very, very painful. I want to invite you in this time to think about that, your, your own fear, your, your own anxiety, And yeah, the pastor said some nice things, but I want you to think about how you really feel right now in our situation, how you feel about politics, how you feel about our culture, how you feel about your own relationships, how things are going, how about the things that you fear and you feel anxiety. I want you to feel those things. And then as we take part in the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want you to know that you're not alone. He's been there before. As you think about those things, you are taking part in the life and death and resurrection of someone who has seen that movie before and has the scars to prove it. Maybe you do too. And you're not alone. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can also speak resurrection, new life, in areas of your life and your fears and your anxieties and your relationships in ways that may be shocking to you, just like the resurrection was shocking to the first people who witnessed it. But you're not alone, and you're taking part in him. And then as you follow him in loving your neighbor, we're believing for resurrections.